In thinking about temperament and character education, I like to remember an analogy that Michelangelo used about himself as a sculptor. He said that when beginning a new work, his job was really to look at the block of marble and to see the statue that was within it because the statue already was there. He saw his job as a sculptor to just chip away all of the excess marble so that the statue within could come out. He would look at block after block of marble until he found the right one for the statue he wanted to make. We can think of his Moses that demonstrates the power of God in the powerful figure of the prophet, or the fairest of Jesse's sons, David, balance, poise, but acquired at a price. The pieta, sorrow, compassion, but the salvation of the world was the result. The peace of Mary's face, the complete self-giving of Jesus. So I think we as parents and educators can think of our job in the same way, that we too have before us young people who are finding their potential, who are trying to find out how to be those persons God made them to be. And we are, like Michelangelo, like the sculptor, the helper. So what is temperament? Temperament, in a certain sense, is a construct. It's the human effort to identify patterns of psychosomatic, that is, psychological and bodily reactions that we all have on the basis of common characteristics. Why? So that we can understand them and help people make the most of their potential. Like all classifications, temperament abstracts from the individual and focuses on common features. So we need to remember that though we're going to be look at, looking at common features of temperament, these things are not used as pigeonholes into which to fit people for our convenience, but rather they are helps toward understanding each unique individual that we have in front of us. And then to be able to help that person do two things. Number one, know themselves and take ownership of their own life and direct their potential, maximizing their strengths and bringing their weaknesses into balance. We may never eradicate our weaknesses. We may always have a tendency to laziness, procrastination, or something like that. But um, we can bring those into balance with our strong qualities that we enhance so that they don't limit us in the pursuit of an integrated life, a balanced and integrated personality, and achieving the best that we can in this world in preparation for entering the next. So then what is temperament? It has an ancient history. It was first sort of described by Hippocrates 300 years BC, and then Galen, another Greek physician and philosopher, um, developed the humors theory. He kind of codified the names for the temperaments and their characteristics, and then it went on from there. Currently, things like the Myers-Briggs, the Please Understand Me, the David Kiersey, 
temperament disorder are all attempts or are all um, evolutions of this effort to understand ourselves so that we can possess ourselves, that is, that we can have that beautiful balance and integration and that we can comfortably interact with other people and make the most of our gifts in that interaction and actually make the most of theirs too. Because if we understand temperament, it will help us understand other people. And then we can make a great contribution to the lives of others by precisely understanding them and helping them go forward in whatever way we're called to do that. So according to the system that I'm using, it's the fourfold classification of choleric, melancholic, sanguine, and phlegmatic. Um, let me add first, though, that biology is not destiny. Although these four temperaments signify something about our biological makeup, our biological makeup is not all of who we are. That's sort of the raw material, too, that we have to work with. But it does influence how we react to things. So we need to know how we react in order to then respond, that is, filter our reactions through reason and respond in the most fitting way. So choleric, melancholic, phlegmatic, and sanguine. How can we identify our temperament or someone else's? Well, I think one interesting uh, way of doing it is to think about a fire, somebody shouting fire in a movie theater. The four temperaments will react in four distinct ways. This is a little hyperbolic, but I think it gets the point across. across. The choleric temperament will jump up and say, everybody head for the exit, and start leading people towards it. The phlegmatic temperament will sit there and scope out the best, safest exit route before shepherding anybody out the door the sanguine temperament will look up and say, where's the barbecue? And the melancholic temperament will need help getting up out of the chair because that one will be crying. We're all going to fry in here. So as that example uh, or sort of hyperbolic analogy shows, the temperaments react at different speeds and with different uh, dynamic energies. So the choleric and the sanguine are the two temperaments that react quickly to stimuli. The phlegmatic and the melancholic are the temperaments that are slower to react. They can be very slow to react. The choleric temperament is the take charge temperament that wants to go out and do something about it. The sanguine temperament is the one that's looking for the next party because they like to have fun. You always want a sanguine around. Um, the melancholic temperament is slow to react, is the thoughtful, think things through, analytical, come up with the best solution, and then let's put it into effect temperament. And the phlegmatic is, oh, I think I'll just sit here and watch the world go by. It's so interesting. Let's just look at the choleric, melancholic, and sanguine. It's so much fun to observe what their antics are. Okay. So let's now take a look at each one of the temperaments. Temperament, as we said before, is, like biology, the raw material of who we become. Because character is what we make of ourselves by our free choice and our personal effort exercised on our temperamental inclinations and the effects of our environment. 
what are the effects of our environment? Well, some very important and fundamental effects are the surroundings in which children grow up. Parents and their first relationships are very important in their lives. The persons that people meet and are affected by make the strongest impact on them. Other things that begin to influence them as they grow up are the examples of other people, their formal education, which is why parents need to be very involved in the education of their children from the beginning through high school. Sometimes we can think, oh, in high school they need to take more responsibility for themselves, they need to be given more scope of freedom, and that's all true. But parents need to be, I would say, as involved, if not more, more so involved, in the lives of their high schoolers than in their children's childhood. Because that's the age at which they become more conscious of who they are of their tendencies, their inclinations. They need to think it through, and they need to be mentored into life. So it's very important for parents to remain in the lives of their children as adolescents. It's also very important for parents to make a connection with their children's teachers um, and those that are in sports, their coaches, et cetera, because when there is a tight uh, working between, there's a tight relationship uh, on helping a young person develop between school and home, uh, school and athletic coach, or, or whatever else a young person may be involved in, that's when we have the best outcome in making the most of our temperament. Personal effort is also the other most influential factor in who a person becomes. Because we can think of people that we know who perhaps uh, were raised in some very difficult home situations or neighborhood situations or environmental situations. And they are not drawn down into the negatives of their environment, but they grow and can use all of that as part of their foundation for going forward. The same is true. We can see children who have had all the advantages of um, upbringing, et cetera, and yet, their free choice can take them in a different direction. Unfortunately, we would wish that it didn't happen. But that's the power of free choice. So what we can do is put our children in the best situation, helping them to make the most of who they are, to first know themselves, know what their tendencies and inclinations are, and then to work little by little with a great deal of hope and optimism, encouraging them always along the way so they can become the best that they can be. Okay, let's take a look at the four temperaments. So the choleric, this temperament's emotions are easily and strongly aroused. They tend to be very active, reactive. The imprint of impressions lasts for a very long time. They like to be up and doing, having a project going. They're very entrepreneurial. They work quickly and diligently and can become very successful. They have a lot of uh, endurance and sometimes a lot of self-assurance. What this temperament needs to do, though, is to understand that they do have limits. This is a kind of child who can drive themselves to burnout, okay? Um, their need for relaxation, their need for balance, so as not to wear themselves out. 
but they also need to avoid that kind of haste that leads them to biting off more than they can reasonably chew, leave projects unfinished, uh, and then be unhappy about it. They need to learn to plan, size up a task, and then start it. Cholerics usually have a pretty incisive intellect that predominates over their emotions and imagination. They have a good power of concentration. They're practical as well as theoretical and sometimes more practical than theoretical. They get a little impatient with theory and want to move on, as we can imagine, to accomplish things. They're resourceful in finding new ways to reach goals, and they tend to be good at leadership and organization by nature. They have to look out for developing two heads and no heart. Um, that is, because they have such a keen insight and they are so capable, they can kind of dismiss or not pay attention to the insights of others or even can think others are less capable than they really are because the choleric is so focused on the solution to the problem that they know will work. They need to be careful about not becoming harsh or rashly judgmental of others who are different or whom they perceive to be less talented. Um, they can tend to dominate rather than learn how to play as a member of a team. And yet, if they learn all of these skills, they can become excellent leaders and excellent cultivators of the potential of other people. Because of their insight, they can see all of that potential if they bother to pay attention to it. Otherwise, they can become impatient, bossy, and um, unpleasant, shall I say? They can also become rigid in their thinking, so they need to develop flexibility. And in raising children, it's good to help them learn to think from very earliest age on. Um, to ask children, now, what were you thinking when you did that? Or what did you think of that experience? Or if the child is upset, well, why did that upset you? And to give them the vocabulary, because one of the things that can happen is that a person can be feeling an emotion, but if they don't have the vocabulary to name what they're feeling and why they're feeling the way they are or what seems to have sparked that, um, they can just keep on feeling it, which with a choleric can tend to happen because the impressions last so long. They have an excellent memory, sometimes like a steel trap. And um, they can hold on to a grudge or they can hold on to impress an impression long after they don't need to. So in addition to learning to value the insights and advice of others and the flexibility um, to try to understand where others are coming from and really value the opinions and the talents of others, we need to recognize that they have very noble aspirations themselves. They want to achieve great and lofty goals. Um, they're capable of great sacrifices and because of their makeup, the efforts necessary to make those sacrifices. They see obstacles as a challenge to overcome. The bigger, the better. The higher, the more I, higher I can jump. Um, and they strive for excellence naturally. So humility and truthfulness are two virtues that this temperament can grow in and needs to be helped to grow in. Because when they make mistakes, it's hard for them to take their mistakes. 
it's hard for them to admit that although most of the times, many of the times, they're right, this time they were wrong. And to learn from that mistake rather than trying to cover it up. Um, if they develop a well-balanced character, a choleric can do a lot of good with their intellectual talent, their enthusiasm for noble and great ideals, which coupled with their sincere interest in the good of others allows them to make valuable contributions to whatever group they live or work in. Virtues to develop for the choleric, prudence, justice, temperance, and charity. Now let's talk about the sanguine temperament. The sanguine reacts quickly and strongly to any stimulus or impression, as does the choleric. But the reaction doesn't usually last long. The impressions don't stay. They're quickly forgotten. And I think an example of this is when mom is in the house somewhere, the children have been playing for a while, and suddenly it's quiet. Mom knows that she needs to go and find out what's up. And what does she find? But uh, Johnny or Julie or whoever drawing a mural on the wall but it's the mural of a four-year-old. So mom tells Johnny or Julie, oh, we don't draw on the wall. Let's have some paper in front of us to draw on. And the child is, okay, fine, that's great. But this keeps happening. And eventually mom is a little, um, shall we say, out of sorts with the repeated murals on the wall. And she says, haven't I told you not to do this? And Johnny or Julie is very upset about having displeased mom and done something that they shouldn't do. And they burst into tears. Um, when it's quiet in the house again, mom needs to go and look at the wall because it could be that Johnny or Julie are at it again with their artistic skills. The remembrance of past experiences doesn't easily stimulate a new response of the same kind, which is why sanguines, unlike cholerics, don't hold grudges. Um, they don't remember the negative things that happened. They're ready for a new experience. The positive qualities of the sanguine are that they are cheerful, pleasant, serene, optimistic. They're generous and sympathetic towards others. They're compassionate and sensitive, as long as they're not distracted having fun. They're also uh, obedient usually, they're sincere, they're spontaneous, they really mean what they say with their good intentions and good desires. They have a lot of common sense and a practical approach to life, but they tend to idealize rather than criticize. And not that we want people to become critical, but their idealization of people can be out of proportion. Um, so they cannot live in the real world and imagine people to be more positively disposed than they really are. The sanguine is affectionate and makes friends easily. They have clever intellects usually, they learn quickly, though they're distractible, and their love of ease and comfort can keep a sanguine superficial and less than learned. So these children need to be helped to learn deferred gratification how to sit and patiently complete a task and then have the fun that they're so good at. They have active and creative imaginations. They often excel in areas such as art, public speaking, 
anything that puts them in contact with other people because they are truly people persons. They're resilient, they bounce back from setbacks quite easily. They like the society of other people and they can be the life of the party and an excellent team player. Now what does the Sanguine need to watch out for? Superficiality, breadth rather than depth, whether in study, work, or human relationships. Because they seem to grasp difficult subjects or problems quickly, they can also form hasty judgments and act without sufficient reason. So they need to learn to think before they act. Their excessive love of comfort and their sense of pleasure um, can also lead them to things like vanity, inconstancy, superficiality again. Um, they can appear to be moody or not stable in their moods, but if they work on these things, if they learn to know themselves, if they learn to work for a goal that is good and worthwhile and to defer gratification, they can learn uh, to be excellent persons and contribute a great deal to life and society. A few other things that a sanguine needs to learn is to not need to see, hear, and know everything and be involved in everyone else's business. Um, and they need to learn the patience to develop the virtues and good qualities to pursue a noble goal. Otherwise, they can give up too easily. The virtues for a sanguine would be prudence, fortitude, and temperance. Let's think about the melancholic temperament. The melancholic is the thinker, the one who likes to analyze, take in impressions, put ideas together, and then do something with them. They like to plan. They like to solve riddles and problems. They usually have good insight. And they like to find the causes and the correlations among things. The melancholic, however, has a similarity to the choleric, and that is that their impressions go deep, whether they're negative or positive. But since they don't respond quickly, the negative impressions can build up a store of negative energy until it manifests itself in something that looks like a temper tantrum, an unexpected reaction that is quite dramatic and quite emotional. We need to remember that about melancholics so that their sudden outbursts don't seem to come out of nowhere and help them find out what caused what's going on now. What does this disproportionate reaction come from? What stimulated it? And we also need to help them, as they take in impressions, recognize, oh, I'm building a store of negative impressions, and I'm beginning to build a store of negative emotions. I think I had better think about this and deal with it now before I have one of those unfortunate meltdowns that can happen every once in a while. So let's go back to the melancholic. I call this the artistic temperament. They can be quiet. They can keep doing things for a long time. They like to think things through until the end. They don't like to leave untied knots. Um, they like to think about a broad range of ideas. Um, 
they can frequently master more than one subject area deeply. Um, they can also become sort of the Renaissance type person that masters a lot of areas with good competence. The melancholic likes silence and solitude, and they don't feel at home in a crowd. They can be quite shy. Um, they're given to contemplation and prayer. They like to think about eternal truths, reflect on cherished plans and ideas. They like to look ahead to the future. And if not trained, they can brood or daydream. They can become loners or isolates. And we have to help them be careful of that because they actually like other people a great deal and have a lot to contribute. Like the choleric, they can bring out the best in others because they're very sensitive to the qualities and the abilities of other people, their likes and their dislikes and their needs. So the melancholic has a lot to offer, um, but they need to recognize that they have a serious attitude toward life and at heart's core, they always entertain, they always have some sort of sadness Life never is quite satisfactory. There's something missing. They're nostalgic about something. And what it is, is actually the desire to reach the ultimate good and the ultimate truth. That's what they long for. And they're capable of setting high goals and ideals for themselves and to strive for them with excellence and perfection. And therein lies the danger. The melancholic can become your typical perfectionist. And so what they need to do is learn to lighten up and have fun, because they really can. And they enjoy the fun that other people are having. But sometimes other people don't enjoy the melancholic because they don't contribute necessarily a lot to the fun until they're comfortable with people and situations. And then they're capable of coming out of themselves and participating just like anybody else and having a good time. But we need to help them learn how to test the waters, how to take risks how to go into unfamiliar situations. And sometimes with the melancholic, we need to step into the situation with them, especially when they're very young, and help them realize that they can negotiate this or teach them how to negotiate it. Um, introduce them to the other people, uh, children that are going to be there. Maybe walk them through it before they go into it so that they feel comfortable about how to handle the situation. Melancholics need to make sure that they develop a realistic view of the world and their own capacities and learn not to get despondent with lengthy efforts because although they have a lot of staying power, if they don't see the result, if they don't see fruition of their efforts, they can become sad about it. They have that sadness at heart's core, remember, and we don't want them to get depressed. Physical energy affects a melancholic markedly. If they're tired, their will is weak. If they're in good health and good spirits, they're energetic workers. But this child needs to learn how to live a balanced, work, a balanced life because they can throw themselves into something or into too much, just like the choleric, not be able to handle it, and then they get sad. Another thing that the melancholic is, because they like to think, is reserved. And as I said, it's difficult for them to form new acquaintances. They speak very little. They can have a hard time figuring out what to say. And there again, a little practice makes perfect, and they'll be fine. They do have a sincere interest and concern for others. They're compassionate toward the suffering 
and attracted toward works of mercy. They're able to endure to the point of heroism and sacrifice and in fulfilling their duties. They're loyal, faithful, trustworthy, and prudent. They love so strongly that it can be difficult to detach themselves from a loved object or person. And so they will need help in learning how to do that as well. They can tend to passivity and not be energetic because they're so thoughtful and pensive. Um, they can seem and be a little timid and irresolute. Their self-esteem may be low. Uh, they, the melancholic doesn't usually have a wonderful um, self-concept. So they need to know that humility is truth and that admitting the truth about themselves means learning how to say thank you when somebody compliments them on their good points and learning to make the most of their good points and to enjoy them um, and not think that they're being proud because they enjoyed executing a great dance move or something like that, right? Um, to help them not to become discouraged easily or to magnify difficulties because that's something else that a melancholic can do. Things can seem more difficult to them than they actually are or that then they would seem to, let's say, a sanguine or a choleric, and help them to learn balance in their thinking in that way so they don't cut off opportunities, uh, the development of some of their talents. Um, they need to rely on God and their native talents and develop a more optimistic view of life, life enjoy a challenge, um, and then they will be fine. Not to have too many th second thoughts in making a decision um, think things through just enough and then launch uh, lest they miss out on an opportunity. Give it their best shot and try again if they're unsuccessful. The melancholic is also exceptionally sensitive. They feel every emotion much more strongly and deeply than other temperaments. They can feel the pain of moral failure very keenly failure in duty uh, because they know that this hurts God and others. And because they feel sorrow and grief so often and for so long, they can fall into depression. Let's think now about the phlegmatic temperament a little bit. This temperament is very easy. They're steady. They're not riled by misfortunes. They don't get irritated by insults or sickness. They're tranquil peaceful, they have a lot of common sense, mental balance, they're prudent by nature, they don't take risky, wild decisions, they're sensible, they're reflective, if you can get them off the couch. Their favorite posture is horizontal with a bag of potato chips and a Coke watching television, preferably that you turn on for them. The phlegmatic tends to be orderly, clear in speech and thought, positive, they don't talk a lot, but what they say is interesting and important. They work with a measured pace, if they work, um, but they can work very steadily on a project and bring it to detailed completion. They have good hearts, but they can seem cold, so they can be underestimated in that sense. Um, they sometimes can seem not interested in the events and people around them and live by and for themselves, almost to the point of seeming egotistical. 
and they can become that if they're not helped. However, like anyone else, they can give of themselves to the point of heroism if necessary, but they don't have this enthusiasm and spontaneity of, let's say, the sanguine and the choleric. As I said before, they tend to be a little lazy by nature, and so they have to be taught to set goals and work for them and to enjoy the results, because they will enjoy the effort if they enjoy the results, and if they enjoy the people that they're putting the effort into for or with. So a lot of teamwork, um, exposing the phlegmatic temperament to lots of different things that they might like to do so that they find their talents, they find their likes and inclinations, and they can go forward with them. Um, they need to develop deep convictions and be able to demand of themselves because their default is watching the world go by and enjoying the scene. Uh, being methodical and constant. They need to remember that they may advance slowly, but that they can go far. Sometimes they can think, well, it's not worth the effort because there goes the choleric, he passes me by every time, and the melancholic beats me to that well-thought-out proposal before I can get there because it takes me longer to think. But if they realize that their thinking leads to the same goal, that their thinking is worthwhile, that their thinking will complement to and bring to a better end product the contributions of others, perhaps, then they can stick with it. Or if they have the joy of getting there, of achieving that goal, it'll be worth their while to invest. Phlegmatics usually, interestingly enough, are physically pretty robust. So sports is a good thing to try to get them involved in. Um, so they stay in good condition rather than vegging out on the couch. And um, again, learn a range of activities that they may enjoy engaging in. They're good friends, loyal, but they can lose opportunities for both friendship and um, jobs and other things because they delay too long in putting their decisions into practice. So industrious and perseverance are the two virtues for phlegmatics. Cultivate an interest in others and a like for working with them, and courage, fortitude, the hang in there power, the stick with it power. Fortunately, most people are mixed temperaments. Um, one predominates to a greater or lesser degree than the other. The important thing is to figure out who we are. What is the mix of characteristics of the choleric, the melancholic, the phlegmatic, and the sanguine that might be in our temperament? How do I react, quickly or slowly? That's a basic indicator. So we can identify our fundamental pattern of reactions and then work on it, looking at the virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, the big four that humanity has known since time immemorial, and thinking, well, what do I need to improve in? And little by little, setting small goals until we can bring it all into balance and develop a solid, stable, integrated character that we enjoy and others enjoy as well. We enjoy life. We're happy. And we can contribute to 
others around us and their lives and, and the common goals of our society and community. And that's what we're called to do, is it not? Now that we've taken a look at the four temperaments, let's take a look at how virtue applies to them. What is virtue? Well, virtues are good habits. That is, they're the habits that help us be fully human. Um, they were identified again since time immemorial, way back from ancient Greece. The philosophers encouraged people to live wisdom, justice, courage or fortitude, and moderation or temperance. So these are fundamental human qualities that help us make the best of who and what we are. So after discovering which tendencies and which mix of temperamental tendencies we have, because the mix comes in different degrees. You can have somebody who's 65% choleric and the balance melancholic, or you can have somebody who is 35% phlegmatic mixed with the rest sanguine, and those balances will have different effects as they come together. So it's important to know how strongly the temperamental inclinations affect each of us. But then once we do have a sense of that, we can take a look at virtue and see how we need to cultivate it. So let's take a look at the fundamental human virtues. Prudence, which has been called the mother of all virtues. Why? Because prudence is the virtue of balance. It's an intellectual virtue that means that it resides in the mind because it's the mind, it's reason that guides the will towards choice, towards good choice. So prudence is the intellectual virtue that helps us guide our will to choosing the good, the best good in this circumstance at this time for the right reasons. It's closely linked to truthfulness because only by knowing the truth of things and situations can we make good choices. Essential to truthfulness and prudence is seeing and remembering things as they are accurately, which means that we need to learn self-possession. That is the ability, and I think this is a very key ability for all temperaments um, in our lives, to rather than react immediately to an impression or an emotion, to be able to step back and say, wait, what am I feeling? What am I perceiving? What am I sensing now that's motivating me to want to just react? And to think, is this the best response? Is this the best choice to make in this situation? Is this what will achieve the good that should be achieved in this situation? And then we can think about how we respond. Simple example. Two people talking to each other about something. And for some reason, one of them feels anger being stimulated. Well, rather than continuing the conversation and letting the anger build, 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 interiorly, we can continue listening, taking in what we're taking in. But we have that little space where we can step back and say, wait, why is this emotion rising in my heart? What's provoking it? 
And sometimes we can learn the skill of saying, you know, I, need, I think we need to stop now and pick up this conversation later. But in any case, we can cultivate that quiet space inside of ourselves that allows us to step back from a stimulus or an emotion and size it up and then respond intelligently, respond prudently, if you will, so that we achieve the goal um, that we want to instead of causing an emotional outburst or, or causing disagreement or a negative experience rather than a positive one, which we could do if we found the good and could accentuate the positive, could look for points of compromise maybe or of common agreement and work toward the best outcome rather than um, sowing a little division there or irritability or what have you. So thinking clearly, this is something very important for children, and being honest about what happened. What did I say? What did I do? What did the other person say? What did the other person do? To think calmly, to think clearly. This is all part of prudence. It helps children be able to evaluate their own strengths and weaknesses so they know themselves better and they can improve. Their personal effort can go into meeting the next situation of that sort differently or better so that they can develop habit, the habit of prudence, the habit of thinking before acting, the habit of sizing up goals and consequences. What is the best thing to do here? To live in reality rather than illusion because if we are trapped in our emotions or if we're carried away by our emotions, we're not living in reality. Um, and this has nothing to do with curtailing creativity. On the contrary, we need silence. We need that quiet space inside of ourselves. The Greeks called it contemplation. Um, Christians and even others call it prayer. So we need to think and sift things quietly, reflectively, not only by ourselves, but with that most important other, who is God. Prudence also helps us learn from experience by reflecting on it. Helps children accept themselves in their life situation while allowing them to plan and challenge themselves to improve. So it, it's contrary to passivity and those temperamental inclinations uh, to passivity that are in some of us, perhaps all of us. It also helps children avoid telling untruths, whether simply out of fear of punishment or out of the desire to take the easy way out, to avoid looking bad, fear of too great a challenge, or simply to please someone else. Sincerity is an allied virtue. Sincerity is no pretense, no duplicity, and it's best fostered in children by unconditional love and understanding. One way to foster sincerity in children is again by talking with them and finding out their opinions on things, their ideas, their reasons for doing things. This is, as I said before, especially important with melancholics who tend to be somewhat withdrawn in childhood and early adolescence when precisely they begin developing their own interiority, their own personality. Um, we wouldn't want them to become isolates uh, because that is not what will bring out the best in them. 
sometimes if you try to force a melancholic to talk, uh, they can avoid talking. But if you gently take them for a walk, take them out for some reason to uh, have a hamburger together or whatever, they will begin to share what they have inside that they're thinking about or that's bothering them. Um, parents need to cultivate occasions suited to each child when the child will talk openly. Um, alone in the car on errands tends to be a moment of choice for some parents because you're kind of part of the steering wheel. So the child will start uh, speaking genuinely and, uh, and freely. Prudence helps us learn to evaluate possibilities. And children and adolescents have very little life experience. Just telling them what to do doesn't help them develop their critical and creative capacity to make judgments. Asking them questions, however, that stretch their minds to think about possibilities and then guiding them in coming up with a good solution does help them learn. Learning from an error can be just as valuable or even more so than learning from success. If things come too easily, failure can be catastrophic, especially for some temperaments. It's harder for them to bounce back and be resilient. But if they can learn that an error is as much a success sometimes as a real success, that there are things to be learned that I couldn't have learned had I succeeded, then that's a win. Justice, let's think about justice. That is giving each person his or her due. This is a virtue that resides in the will. It's the good disposition to want to give others what they deserve and what they should have. It's a virtue needed so that everyone can fulfill their duties and exercise their rights as persons, their right to life, cultural and moral goods, material goods, etc., and try to see that others do the same so that I'm not thinking just about what I deserve and my rights, but I'm looking for the good of others as well. Justice doesn't focus just on me. Justice means that I look at my needs, my what, what I should have, what I really need, and what other persons need and should have, too. And maybe a little more, and that's called generosity and love. Because justice alone is not enough. If we use justice uh, in a sort of cut-and-dried way, well, we may be just, but we can actually do harm with that. If we don't, you know, somebody has done something wrong, and we throw the book at them, well, is that really the best, the most just solution in this situation? Or do we need a more nuanced approach? It's uh, consequences for disobedience, for example. Um, do I really need to ground this child right now? Or is there another more formative way of helping them learn the lesson that what they did wasn't the best choice for them, for others, etc.? Justice regulates our relationships so that we give in a balanced life, we live a happy life. Why? Because we give to others the right time, the right attention, the right amount of ourselves and our energies, our love, okay? 
to God, parents, our siblings, authorities, peers, learning how to negotiate obedience and respect for authority with my choices, legitimate boundaries, my legitimate needs, etc. So the virtue of justice. Respect for others by recognizing their otherness and seeing them as other selves. We talk about diversity. And this is the true diversity, to take each person as who they are, to be willing to get to know them for who we are, and not just assume that they're just like me, or they should be just like me, um, to recognize one's responsibility to the community, my responsibility to the community, because I'm a member of it. I have family responsibilities because it takes all of us together to make the family go forward or the team, or the class, or the club, or the city, or the nation. Working with others, making and keeping agreements are all important parts of justice. Keeping promises, being discreet, that is, not having secrets in the sense of false secretiveness of early adolescence, but knowing when to give the right information to the person who needs to know it. Avoiding gossip, slander, returning what's borrowed, paying just debts, admitting responsibility, and taking responsibility. Doing an honest day's work, playing by the rules of the game. Learning the appropriate ways of dealing with injustice so that we exercise moderation at the same time that we pursue the good assiduously. We continue seeking the truth and the good for all involved, uh, but in a way that recognizes and respects the good of everyone. Fortitude, courage, knowing when to act and when to endure. The two aspects of fortitude. The fundamental act of courage in human life is to accept one's own. That is, my circumstances. My circumstances in the past, in the here and now, as I look forward to the circumstances, the possibilities, um, and the good that I hope to achieve in the future. Fortitude means accepting all of reality all of the time. The easy and the difficult, the pleasant and the painful, the good and the bad, the joyful and sorrowful, the things that help and support us, as well as those that hinder and burden us. Secure in the truth that everything comes from the God who is our good loving Father. A Father who organizes everything for the good of each of his children. Fundamentally, it means accepting oneself for who and as one is and striving to do my best to improve. It means learning how to take risks, try new things, live success humbly, and humility is the truth, by the way, and be resilient in failure. Endurance is probably the more difficult aspect of the virtue of courage, because it's more laborious and heroic to resist an enemy, says St. Thomas Aquinas, along with the ancients, by the very fact of his attacking us, showing that he considers himself stronger and more powerful than we, than to attack an enemy who, precisely because we take the initiative against him, seems to us to be weaker than we are. So it means standing my ground 
even if I'm experiencing fear or anxiety. And anxiety is something very important, especially for girls, to learn to deal with. Um, seems to be one of the rough patches that girls can endure in adolescence. Um, and so helping them not to fear challenges, not to dwell excessively on what might happen, the negative of what might happen, but to build up the courage of thinking, I don't know what might happen, but I've been given the resources to deal with the unexpected, to deal with unknown things in the past, and it's likely that I will be able to deal with this in the here and now as well knowing that I have others to rely on. I'm not alone. I'm never alone. And perhaps that's something important that we all need to remember, that we are never alone. We always have other persons who are willing to help us, but above all, we also have God, our loving Father, who is with us at every moment. He's never absent from us. We're always in his hands. Becoming independent thinkers is one of the best helps to fortitude. Interior freedom is cultivated by thinking independently, but knowing my finitude, I don't know everything, and I can't do everything, but I don't have to just do what someone tells me because they tell me. Um, I don't have to just obey indiscriminately. I need to think about what is the good thing to do in the here and now. Temperance is also self-discipline. That's something that helps us endure, to be in it for the long haul. Knowing how to moderate our bodily and emotional um, needs or stimuli in the right way so that we don't need instant gratification to understand that we are body and soul and that both need attention. So the object of the virtue of moderation is proper order. Reason guiding impulse. Reason guiding feelings. Restraint of the natural tendency towards self-indulgence. Learning how to forgive others and myself, because sometimes we don't forget, forgive ourselves when God has already done it. So, you know, we might as well, right? He's forgiven us. Humility, patience, and cheerfulness. Optimistic, even in the face of difficulty. So I hope this has been helpful in thinking about temperament, children, and character education. And thank you for the opportunity of sharing.